Hi, this is Jackie Fast, and this is how you sell without selling out. Roger's that. Hi, everybody. I'm Rogers Healy, and welcome to Rogers That, a podcast dedicated to selling without selling out. Today, we have somebody that I don't get fascinated that often, uh, and people don't excite me uh, as much anymore. But this person fascinates me, excites me, and the minute I got connected to her, I was intrigued. Uh, her background is uh, is in collaboration, but in a different uh, degree. I, I would consider her the pioneer of really brokering celebrities with brands. And then she was able to go and lever her company uh, with her slingshot, her slingshot sponsorship company to doing incredible things with companies such as Hyundai, Red Bull, et cetera. But really the stuff that gets me excited is she's worked with the likes of Richard, Sir Richard Branson, uh, Prince, whose, whose real first name is Rogers, the Rolling Stones, and even Elton John. And so when I got connected to Jackie, she was in, uh, the midst of raising a fund where we would go and essentially invest in Jackie to make really great decisions uh, to go and have a specified fund for celebrity backed brands. And it was a no brainer for me. And throughout the course of um, our due diligence, I just became a huge fan. And not just because Jackie has done incredible stuff with her business, but because Jackie has perspective and she's got the gift of a family which keeps her grounded. And so today, we have my friend, uh, someone that I believe in and I've invested in literally and also uh, from a friendship perspective on the show, Jackie Bast. Well, thank you. Those are very nice words, Rogers. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're welcome. You're welcome. But yeah, so, so as we talked about, this is something that, um, you know, it, it's to edify you and it's to share your story and someone that has been you know, in the world of celebrity and the world of branding and now in the world of finance, you know, you've, you've got a, a pretty incredible story that's going to motivate and inspire people. Maybe maybe get us there. Like, who is Jackie? What's your background? And, you know, what led you to where you are today? For sure. I mean, I, I've definitely had a, quite an interesting start. My career really has been in London, England, um, but I'm Canadian. I'm from a very small town, uh, suburb of Vancouver. I grew up with big dreams and didn't really know how to achieve them. And I went... Uh, to backpack Europe for two months and ended up landing in London, fell in love with it and kind of vowed that I would do everything I could to stay there. And I was literally just telling my husband the other day, I remember when I was, I was so broke that I ate um, fruit nut cereal for like two months, like every meal, breakfast, lunch and dinner, because I didn't have enough money to like eat a real meal ever. Um, but I really vowed that that would be, you know, my start in the world. And I was really lucky that I set up a company that ended up being the right timing with a insane amount of hard work. We, we got lucky though, you know, Prince was our second client, as you mentioned. Um, and what I basically did is to your point is I pioneered kind of the launch of a new era of sponsorship. So historically sponsorship is really looked at broadcast, right? So TV. Um, and um, being much younger than my competitors, I was 25 when I set up the business. My like next competitor was about 40, 45. I really saw this wave of social technology and digital revolution changing the way that fans and customers can interact with brands. And so my agency basically put the flag sand boat um, interaction on a more social and digital commerce way. And we were the first agency in the world to do that. And so that kind of led to an insane career. Um, to your point, I, I worked with the Rolling Stones, Prince Elton John. I worked with the Queen of England, Boris Johnson. There's pretty much nobody who is pretty well known in Britain that I haven't worked with. Um, but we also did stuff in India, um, in the UAE. And I mean, we didn't do much in America at that point, just because I just felt America was like too big of a beast to really tackle. Um, and then I was really fortunate that I sold my business in 2016. We had loads of offers um, and 
I, I kind of like semi-retired and I didn't really know what to do. But I started getting all of these offers from celebrities to launch brands because this was shortly after George Clooney sold Casamigos and everybody thought if they just owned a liquor company, they too would be a billionaire. Um, and I just didn't love the ideas. And so I kind of consulted along the way. I was an angel investor for about six years as well with my own capital and really kind of identified an area of celebrity brands growing, but without anybody who's ever done any experience with them. So typically investors in startups are VCs and finance people, people that aren't marketers, certainly people that don't work with talent. Um, and so that kind of was the ethos and the launch point for Sandbox, which we launched in 2021. My gosh. So, so to get back to the storytelling too, I mean, you know, you, you just shared your, your career story in, in, in two minutes, but like getting to Prince, I mean, like obviously you, you got to know what you're doing. And if that was your second client navigating that, like how did you even get those doors open knowing that you, you know, you're swimming upstream and you're a younger female that is kind of learning as you're going, but what, what was the story to even land someone like that as a prospect, much less a client? Again, I think it was timing and luck, but prior to launching Slingshot, I was working in sponsorship. So um, I was working at a company called the Direct Marketing Association. I was very good at my job. Um, so people had known what I was doing prior to launching my own agency. Um, and I was a real, like, I was really young and determined. You have to remember, I had moved to that country to that city without knowing a single soul. I've never had family. I never visited Europe before. Um, oh so it was kind of like make or break. So when you have that much riding on it, you really like hustle and work really, really hard. Prince was a really interesting one because it was a referral. Um, it was somebody I had worked with at my previous role where I wasn't an owner, I was just an employee. And they had known that I had launched a business. Prince was looking for somebody to manage partnerships for his 2010 album. Um, somebody like smart and interesting. I was smart and interesting. The, the truth of the matter is as well, Prince, and I found this out in hindsight, but Prince is probably the most difficult client I've ever worked with. Um, mm. Thank God for that, though, because it was baptism by fire. But I think a lot of the agencies, the more traditional agencies, didn't really want to do anything with him because he wouldn't show up. He was very difficult to commit to anything. Um, and like everybody had gotten burned, but I didn't know that at the time. So at the time, I thought I was just so genius that Prince wanted to work with me. But the truth of the matter was, it, you know, it was a referral. Um, I think a lot of the traditional agencies didn't want to take him on, and I was there. So, you know, it was a whole lucky situation. Um, but th the thing is, having Prince, having him be so difficult, lots of learning lessons, but I smashed it. Um, and everything we did following Prince is kind of the, like, that's what catapulted the agency, truthfully. You know, we picked up the Rolling Stones after that. We picked up Elton John after that. We became kind of known for working with impossible clients, doing impossible things. Um, and then, and, you know, our agency grew, you know, tenfold. We had eight, um, we had offices in Brazil, also Singapore, London. We were massive. Um, but, you know, at the time I was working with Prince, it was like the Royal We. It was like me in a rented flat. Rented, rented room in a flat. So what was it was it hard? I mean, people that work with celebrities or high profile or even high net worth people, especially at a young age. I mean, what was the headspace that you took working with some of the most famous and most successful people in the world, knowing that your ass was on the line and you had to treat them like a client and obviously remove the fandom and remove the fact that they are, 
you know, who, who, they, who they were. What was that like? And how did you condition yourself pretty quickly, which obviously helped lever it to what you're doing today? Well, I'm not a big fan. <laughs> so, like, when I took Prince on, I didn't even really know who he was. Um, and I remember wow. telling a friend of mine, being like, do you not know Purple Rain? I'm like, what's Purple Rain? You have to Whoa. remember, like, I'm from a small suburb in Canada. I, like, you know, yeah. arguably maybe not the most cultured person previously before I launched. So, A, I wasn't a fan. I didn't really understand how big he was. Um, but to your point along the way, obviously, I knew how big certain people were. I think that was one of the things that made me really good at my job. Um, so in, in addition to music, which we did a lot of music, um, music was kind of, you know, going through a revolution. They were getting killed by Spotify. So people were looking for alternative sources of revenue. Um, so that yep. was like a really easy place for us to fit in. But we started working with sport as well. And I like, I'm not a big fan of sport. So like all of the big sports stars where most people that work in sports sponsorship are like massive guys that are fans of sports, that love rugby, that love football. And because I kind of have no love for the sport and don't really care, I have a really objective view of transaction metrics and conversion metrics rather than if you love football you should you know give 50 million dollars to the Chelsea football club without any basis so um not being a fan is really what underpinned a lot of the metrics within our agency because I needed to prove why conversion and why demographics and why this partnership would work for a brand um and and then I think also you know I worked with the Prince, the Rolling Stones were like kind of my first client. So like it was that Duran Duran's Christmas party. And like I started there. So like everybody else was like, eh, you know what I mean? I don't know. Like, and it's also, it's not, um, it's my job. So I just, I just, it's, it, I, I approach it very differently. I think than most people probably would. At, at what point did you realize that you could really disrupt the world of sponsorships and how, how could you enhance it knowing that you've got such a unique skill set where I think part of your skill is the fact that like you weren't a fan and you treated them like an individual that needed help. But what was that first eye opening experience or that thought where you're like, okay, I can put, I can put something behind this and, and make myself a significant player to where you're competing and winning the business. Well, I mean, I think it was before I launched the business. So, you know, I, I really, I really noticed that nobody in sponsorship was moving with the times and I was attending like ad tech and media tech and all this stuff and SEO was popping up and, you know, behavioral marketing and targeted ads and nobody in sponsorship integrated any of these new technologies within their deals. And so that's why, I mean, I launched the business for a couple of reasons, but when I launched the business, I really felt very, very strongly that I was right. Um, and I felt that everybody else was doing it wrong and it took a couple of years, you know, it took me nine months to get my first client and I literally had no money. Um, and nine months is a really long time when you aren't sure if you're even going to get a client. Um, but I had a really high conviction in what I was doing. And, you know, one really important thing with sandboxes, I didn't work from 2016, I stayed on in 2017 to transition the business, but I haven't really been working since 2016, 2017. And that's because I haven't found my thing. I hadn't found my thing. Um, I need a lot of, I guess, conviction and an idea to really get up and go because when I work, I work really, really hard. Um, and I'm not going to do that for like a half-assed idea. So, um, you know, it took me five years to figure Soundbox Studios out. Um, and, but Slingshot was the same thing. I had very high conviction that it was going to be 
it was the only thing in the world doing something that the future was moving towards. Isn't that powerful? I think it's such a, it's kind of a scary thing. I think it's also, um, it's a really freeing thing that, you know, I, I don't, we, we, you and I don't know each other that well, but I went through, and honestly, because of this podcast, I used to think that I was the epitome of someone that was not a sellout doing what they were supposed to be doing. The, I was, I, my background is in real estate and I've been a realtor for 23 years. And um, actually a guy that I met through Ryan Osborne was my very, very first guy, a guy named Chris Camillo. And I was listening to him talk. I was like, oh my God, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And it led me to this feeling of, you know, this journey that led me to, you know, kind of how we connected. But with, with, with what you're doing and, and you're, you're sourcing partnerships and you're using your brain and you're brokering all these deals, what does that look like to you? Like when you get a prospect, you have someone like Prince in your, uh, your client list, how do you go and mold all this together to where uh, eventually I want to share the story about your, your, your fund, obviously, but you get to the point where you have a thousand extra money. You sell your company after six years, which is relatively unheard of. You've got offices all across the world and everyone's relying on you. But at the end of the day, it's all based off your creative. So how did that creative process actually start where you're putting these things together based off what you feel, you know, is the best response just based off your conviction or your gut? So it's, it's not so much gut. It's a lot of data and collating the right data. Um, so Prince is a really great example. Uh, I mean, Prince was an earlier client, so it's not the best example. But um, with Prince, he was launching his 2010 album. He wanted to do a UK tour. They, you know, just like anybody in the world, musicians want to make as much bang for their buck. So sponsorship is a really easy avenue to add additional revenue to something that they're already doing. So as part of the tour, I was responsible for, you know, negotiating, figuring out the venue, the dates, the number of people, um, but wrapped around that. Um, and the initial conversation with how we got on board in the beginning was sponsoring his album launch and his tour. So what you then do is kind of like look at who are his diehard fans, who's going to buy tickets, what type of the, like what kind of people are those people who was interested in those people. So the people that sponsored it was um, a company called Equifax, which is Credit Check, Coca-Cola. Uh, I want to say Hyundai did that one as well. Um, and they, and then what we would then do is go into these brands and come up with a creative brief. So for instance, a car manufacturer, I did lots of stuff with car manufacturers and um, one of our more successful campaigns was intimate gatherings where they would bring like a hundred of their execs and big, big clients or dealerships or dealer owners into a room and have like, you know, John Legend play to like a room of a hundred. Um, so we did a lot of that kind of rolled out and I executed all of that, but it's all of the flow through. So who gets invited, how the follow-up happens, like what the conversion metrics are and then measuring that throughout the thing. Whereas with Equifax, Equifax is really branding. So all they care about is their name being seen in something cool. Um, so a lot of that is utilizing Prince's music, his imagery around advertisements and internal communications within their staff that they're a cool brand. Um, so every brand has a different objective and you have to figure out how one IP or one property wraps around that brand and then execute it. So, I mean, Prince was kind of really the base level of stuff that we did. Um, at the high level, one of my last clients was Elliance and they pulled 300 million with Stadia sponsor rights into a digital transformation program. And at that point, when you're looking at that much money, it really is looking at, you know, what is working for you? What is not working for you? What, why is that working? What kind of, um, Elliance is a really interesting idea because a really interesting company because they've been around 
it's an insurance company if you don't know um, globally, but uh, they they have a very older demographic and insurance is not very sexy or cool for younger people. So how do you take something that has worked for so long, Stadia sponsored right, ship rights and approach a Gen Z audience? And so like that's kind of the high level. So I almost everything that I did was board level um, and uh, we really kind of disseminated an objective and then kind of found the route to market for it. Got so you get to the point where, you know, I, I never built my real estate company with the objective of selling it. And I, I didn't understand that, you know, I didn't understand that journey, but other than, you know, talking to people like you, but were you building Slingshot with the objective of selling it? And if you were, did you think it would happen within six years? I didn't even know you could sell a business. So no, I had no idea. Um, I, I, listen, I was really young. I set up the company when I was like 20 21 or something. I got approached to be sold when I was like, oh no, I sold, set it up when I was 25. Sorry. I sold when I was 31. I think I had my first approach about selling at like 30. And I was just like, what do you mean sell? Like there's nothing to buy. It's me. It's me. You can't buy me. Um, and so that was an interesting journey. Um, and when I found out I could be sold, I then basically, you know, I'm really good at negotiations. So I then levered it really, really well. I had five um, offers on the table and I basically made everybody outbid each other, which is why we got such an insane, insane offer. And I didn't have an out all, all the cash was up front, but um, at the time, no, I didn't even know you could sell a business. Now, one of the things that one of my friends slash mentors slash advisors said when I set up Slingshot was like, you have to plan for an exit. And I remember being like, I didn't even know what an exit really meant. Like, did that mean like retire or now in hindsight, I was like, oh, he meant I should gear it up to sell. And I would yeah. have probably done things slightly differently. Um, but, you know, it, just, it doesn't it doesn't matter. I mean, I was really fortunate to, to sell in the first place. So, so you do that and you go through again. It, I think it's um, it's such a blessing. It's also overwhelming that you're. In your early 30s, you sell a company, you talk about in 2016 up until recent, you kind of were looking for that thing. I think angel investing is really fun, but you don't get to really use your gifts like you did when growing these other companies. So you get to the point where, you know, if y'all didn't hear this already, she won 1,000x her money, 1,000, where most people dream about a one or a two deck, two X, you won 1,000x your money, you were active investing, but you had, you had that burning desire to go and start something and, and do it. You know, I heard a quote a while back that there's a difference between starting from scratch and starting from experience. And you had the experience where you enter into the bold world of, of fund, of fun, being a fund manager and being somebody that's raising money. And so what was the process for that? Where the good news is you've closed it out and you're doing awesome, but what was that journey to get there? And when did you decide that's what actually you were going to pivot and go and put your heart and soul into? Well, I mean, much like most of my career, it wasn't my original idea. So I, was originally going to set up an agency. So I really? really vowed that I never wanted to set up another agency because the problem with <clears throat> Slingshot is a really great example. Slingshot, I got a thousand X, as you mentioned, we were massive. We were the best. Truthfully, like we could have worked with any, we did work with everyone. Anyone we wanted to, I had to pick the litter with clients. I literally charged, I think at one point my day rate was like 10,000, 10,000 pounds a day. Um, and like, you know, I was so, so sought after and, and then we sold. And so everything about that business could not have gone better, but it is still an agency. And if the bigger you get, the more people you need. 
and it's not scalable. So, you know, we got bigger. I didn't get richer. I, I got the, I got the same amount of money because all the extra money that we had went into paying people to do the work. Um, and, and I also found myself really not enjoying the work as much as I did, um, because a lot of it was firefighting and managing people and managing stuff that I didn't love that part of it. Truthfully. Um, you know, I loved the staff that worked for me and it was fun, but it, it wasn't, I didn't love it. Um, and so I said, I would never, ever do another agency. And I wanted to find something that would be scalable. And I just never did find anything scalable. And then over time, I got restless because uh, I didn't think I'd be out of work for so long. Um, and so I started, then I had this, you know, everybody was trying to get me to be a CEO of some stupid celebrity brand. And I didn't want to do that. Um, so I thought that I would set up an agency that would help these celebrity founder brands execute. So I would, you know, raise money for them, do the branding, execution, all of like the base kind of jack of all trade stuff. And, um, and I pitched it so that one of the, one of the companies that tried to buy us was Saatchi and Saatchi, which, um, I really would have loved to sell to. Um, but I went, to, I, I really wanted to work with them. So I went to them with my agency idea. It was like, listen, guys, you wanted to, you wanted to buy my agency. You wanted to work with me. I've got this new idea. What if we invest our resources for equity in these celebrity businesses? I would run them, et cetera. And they're like, well, Jackie, when do we get paid? I'm like four to five years. And they're like, no, we can't because agency models are not made like that. You can't invest. You need money. Like everything's based on the bottom line. The margins are too small. So then I pitched it to another big conglomerate that tried to buy us in the same problem. They're like, we can't invest. And so like for four years, that may or may not pay out. <clears throat> so um, I was then speaking to a friend of mine who became our first investor um, and partner of a fund, Fahad, over dinner. And I was like, there's this opportunity. Nobody's doing this. Somebody needs to do this because everybody's doing a really bad job. <clears throat> I think there's something in this. And he said, well, if you're going to manufacture stuff, where are you going to get the money? I said, oh, I'll just raise it from VCs. And he said, well, why would you raise money from VCs when you could be a VC? And I was like, I never thought it never occurred to me that I could, because I, you know, I, a, the VCs that I knew were not like me, I think is probably the biggest thing. All the VCs I knew in London were like middle-aged men who did not have my background. I wouldn't have like just very different people. And so I was like, interesting. So I started looking into it. And so this was in 2020, 20, 2019. I think I started looking into it. Um, and then the pandemic hit, that's <laughs> like the world's ending. Um, and then I started doing a bit more research and I was like, oh, well, why not? Um, so we, we started raising our, our fund in April of 2021. And how did you go through the headspace of what you were going to actually raise? And did you know how long it was going to take? I mean, were you, were you prepped? What, what was the, what was the goal? How much, how much did you want to raise when you decided to go full board? Well, initially I wanted to raise 15 million because I thought 15 million would be enough money to get some really good case studies and it would be manageable. So I could do it by myself with like the resource and the network that I've got and all of that stuff. I really, and Fahad, we really thought we would speak to five people and three of them would give us 5 million. And it was, it was like, I can't explain to you how good my background is. Like it shouldn't have been as hard as it was. I we really, really believed that five, we would speak to five people that have the money 
and you know we're pretty well connected and they would give us three million each and we would be well on our way and we had those five calls and we got zero dollars so we're like maybe yeah. we can speak to 20 people so we spoke to 20 people we i think we got like a hundred grand or something and we're like oh my goodness this is really bad and i think we tried our approach which was like speak to the rich people that we know and get them to give us money and not really try i think we tried that for like three months ish um and then at the end of the three months i think we had raised a hundred thousand dollars and i was like this is i don't think this is this is gonna work and so i had a really i remember taking like a couple weeks being like this is obviously going to be a lot harder than i thought it was do i really think this is an idea worth investing in with my own time um and i kind of came away from that being like you know what this is a real opportunity nobody is playing in this space we have a very different offering. And more than that, this is what I do. Um, you know, I am like an expert at leveraging IP. This is what I do best. I'm like the best in the world. So when we do make an investment, I can grow these brands very quickly. And so I really kind of came away from that being like, no, this is, this is an idea. This is just going to be impossible to raise capital. So I kind of set out on the journey. I, at that point, thought it would take six months to raise $15 million. Um, I think... Six months after that, we had raised 1.2 million. Um, and then at, at that point, I was like, okay, this is not gonna be easy at all. So um, it took 30 months to raise the fund. But you've closed the fund. Yeah. And, and I was telling her before we started, I think that it just goes back with your brand is you're so approachable. And you know, obviously you've been, the, you're the best of what you've done, but you found a way to go and relay the message where it's easy to digest. And, and, and you shared the journey, you shared the story. But once you close the fund up, you spend 30 months with your partner on a road show talking to people all over the world. And thankfully, that's how you and I met. But you remember the first uh, the first investment you made once the fund was closed? The very first investment we made was TBH, which is a snack company with no snap. And what they are doing, they are taking palm oil out of America's favorite sweets. Um, and they started with Nutella. So palm oil is the number one cause of deforestation in the world. Uh, it is uh, really bad, but tastes so good. It's in everything from like Oreo cookies to Nutella to like every sweet, everything that's creamy and, con and consistent. And they manufactured a Nutella, uh, a Nutella-like um, product, it's called TBH, um, that costs a bit more, but has the same texture and consistency and taste as Nutella. And I, I really liked what they were doing. Their CEO, Elena, is amazing. Noah is incredibly engaged. It reaches a young audience. It kind of ticked all my boxes in terms of like the brands that we want to kind of get behind. Um, so that was our first investment. But since then, we've made some really like non-CPG investments. So we have a Web3 company um, called Unblock, which is doing incredibly well. We also have an animation studio, which um, with which has partners Serena Williams and Jennifer Aniston and the D'Amelios. Um, and that is creating like character IPs on social and leveraging those. So it's not pure play CPG. It really is a mix about talent, talent being part of the strategy. What's been the most fun part about it so far? I don't feel like, I don't feel like it's fun yet. Um, I feel like it's a lot of, um, I, I don't think we're there yet. Um, it's a lot of hard work and I am really wanting this fund, you know, much like Slingshot, I have really high expectations of, 
Like if you're going to want to do something different, you have to really prove it and you have to really, really go way over and above. So with this fund, I really am trying to hit a 20, 20 X, you know, maybe even a third, like I'm really working super, super hard to get this fund to be like the fund of all funds. Um, and that takes a lot of work and there isn't a lot of fun, really. It's a lot of work. Um, I, I would probably say one of the more surprising, enjoyable elements of my work is that I get to meet LPs and I didn't really appreciate how much interaction I would have with LPs. I kind of thought we would raise the money and we would see, see you later and we would go invest some dollars, but actually our LPs, I mean, you're yourself included, but the ones that have come into the fund are really interesting people because they're people that are typically entrepreneurial. I think 60% um, of our LPs are entrepreneurs that have raised businesses wow. themselves. Um, and they all have really, really interesting stories. Um, you know, there's a lot of synergy without overlap. You know, I don't, I didn't have a lot of people that I worked with historically in the fund because most marketers don't have enough money to invest in, in funds. Um, so I've managed to meet people in real estate to your point. Um, I, I've got somebody who's like a previous dentist who sold private equity. It's crazy. But then we also have people that was like, I've got a crypto billionaire. I've got a guy that does all of the textiles in India for like Nike and Reebok. And so like, it's there is a really fascinating group of people. And that is a really surprising element of my job that I really enjoy. Do you have a hard time um, living in the, like, do you have a hard time appreciating what you've done? Like, are, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're like me where I just go, 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 go. And do you take time to ever celebrate these milestones other than selling your company? But you know, going against the odds and raising a fund and getting your first checkout, do you, do you find it hard to go and be like, this is really, really special what I'm doing? And I have people that really are relying on my wisdom and, and me. But, you know, it seems like maybe that's where you and I have alignment, where I, I have a really hard time celebrating any kind of win because there's always something else I got to be working on. Is that a, is that a similar struggle? Um, I mean, I don't think it's a struggle. I haven't done anything yet. I think when the fund is hitting a 10x or a 20x and we have some big distributions and our LPs are making a ton of money, at that point, it is time for celebration. And at that point, I will buy myself a beach house in Malibu. Um, until that point, you know, anybody can raise a fund. I mean, maybe not anybody, but people do. Um, and yeah. I don't think, that that is a celebration thing. I think it was a lot of hard work and I'm really proud I did it, but it really, I raised a fund to get to the point. But my whole end game of this is proving that there are better ways to structure partnership agreements and leveraging IP than the way that it's currently being done. Um, and then my other kind of like added part of that is that people in finance need to get better educated in the structure and the way that, that brands and strategies and founders are moving. Um, because I think that most investors do not take that into account. And so in order to prove those points, my fund needs to be like way an outlier. Um, and at that point, then I will celebrate. Um, but until we get there, it, you know, it's, it's work. That's it's the whole point. Fair enough. But what's the best advice you've ever received? Or maybe maybe this. What's what? What advice would you give somebody? Whether they want to start a fund, whether they want to work in the celebrity space, they want to be an entrepreneur. What what would you share as far as your wisdom is concerned? 
I mean, I think a lot of the times, myself included, especially with this last one, I think you you don't, I think a lot of people look at success and think it comes a lot easier than it does. And it requires an insane amount of sacrifice most of the time. I think, I think anybody, and I've worked with some of the most successful people in the world. Um, it's really rare that they are not sacrificing something um, and putting in the hours. And so I, th I think for me, if you really, really want to do X, Y, Z, you have to put in the time and you have to not be humble about it, but like you have to expect to put in some work. Um, I think, I mean, I've even noticed it with this fund and we're not really taking interns, but I've had some people send me their CVs and friends of friends or LPs of the fund being like, oh, this person wants to work with you. And they kind of like just jump on the phone and like, they don't really know anything about the business or me or what they want to do in it. And like, I just remember when I was like 23, I was so hungry. I like would spend all day trying to figure it out. And like, really, if I had that coffee meeting, that 30 minute coffee meeting, I'd be like there with an ass, with a plan, with a thing. And I just think most people are like, think, think things will just happen and things do not yeah. happen. You know, you have to work for them. And even now, even after everything that I've done before, I'm like really, you know, starting from scratch. I have to work really, really hard to make this work. Um, even with all of the experience, even with all the connections, because nothing comes for free. You think it's hard to maintain balance? I don't think balance is possible, but that's, that's, that's <laughs> I know that not everybody thinks that. Um, I have a, a young family. I have a two-year-old and I'm, and I'm pregnant. So, um, we're oh my goodness, congratulations. Right? You can never tell from the top up. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, that is, that, I don't find that that's super hard because I just got rid of something else. So I used to have a banging social life and now I just don't have no friends. So I just have work and family and that's it. And that's fine um, for, for the foreseeable future, I think. You know, you can't, I don't think that you can have it all. I don't think that you can, I don't think you can achieve, I guess, the height that I want to achieve by having it all. You, you have to find the time. And also I like to sleep. So I'm somebody who needs like eight to nine hours of sleep. So you, something, you got to give something, something away. So I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily believe in balance. Yeah, I, I agree. It doesn't exist. So you, you look back and, and you think about all the things that you're most proud of, whether it's selling your company, it's starting, it's closing a fund professionally, what's the one thing that stands out most as the most memorable moment that you could go and pinpoint as your proudest achievement? I really, really am so proud of myself for sticking in there with Slingshot. I think there were so many times and my mother, I even remember very early on with Slingshot days, we we had, we were renting very cheap office space and the landlord locked us out because he couldn't pay the lease and they lost keys. And we lost all of the, we, they were like computers, not laptops, because it was so back in the day. But we lost all of our computers and all our documents. And I just remember calling my mom, who's in Canada. So I had to wait till she woke up um, and like just crying. And she's like, I think you should just go get a regular job. And I'm like, and I really was like, no. And I just, you know, I really stuck with it because I really, truly believed that I was on something. And, you know, you say six years is not a long time. And truthfully, maybe it wasn't. But I can tell you for like the first five years and 11 months, I really never knew where it would go um, because yeah. I never even knew I could exit. And I pumped all of my spare capital into Slingshot. I had, I had no, you know, I was like, 
not poor, but like, I mean, I just didn't, I, I didn't own a house um, where all my friends had a house. I, you know, I just really kept growing the business because I really believed what we were doing was really something special. And I think to do that for six years takes a lot of guts. Um, and so that is probably the thing I'm most pleased about. Now, if we hadn't have sold, that answer would probably be very different. Yeah. Well, um, your story is, oh, you're, you're such an encouraging, inspiring person. And um, yeah, again, in, in the world of VC, there's a lot of things you can invest in. But I think you're the it's you're the easiest person to invest in that maybe I've ever met because your your confidence is it's genuine and it, it, it comes across it, it's genuine and you know that you're the best at what you do and I think that you're on a mission whether you're thirty xing people's money you're two xing them maybe you lose a little bit of money but um, you've perfected the way to uh, communicate with authenticity while still being lethal and that's why I wanted to have you on today to share your story and inspire people that are um, in their own version of this knowing that you know, maybe you're, you're never finished. And I think that that's the conviction that underlies all this is that you are not meant to go and just read a book and, and do nothing. You've got a, a fire inside you and, and it's working. So that's why, that's why I wanted to have you on today. And I'm, I'm grateful that we could, we could share a part of your story with the people that are watching and listening today. Pleasure. No, it was really nice to see you. Thanks so much for having me on. It was, um, yeah, it's, uh, I love doing these things. It's a nice way to start the day. Yeah, well, you're very good at it. And I, I hope to meet you in person soon and excited to be a part of your uh, your journey. And hopefully uh, I can help again sometime in the near future. For sure. So hit me up if you need anything, Rogers. Thanks so much for having me.